Mark Alsnauer is associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at Northwestern University. He has a BA from St. John's College and a PhD from the John U. Neff Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. He specializes in ethics, aesthetics, and social theory in the 19th century European philosophy. He also has interest in the history of political philosophy, the theory of action, and the philosophy of religion. He's the author of Hegel's Theory of Responsibility, and he's the vice president of the Hegel Society of America. George Dennis O'Brien is president emeritus of the University of Rochester and former president of Bucknell University. He holds a BA in English from Yale University and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Chicago. After teaching philosophy at Princeton for several years, he became a university administrator. Dr. O'Brien is the author of a number of books, including What to Expect from College, All the Essential Half-Truths About Higher Education, and The Idea of a Catholic University. He's the Chair Emeritus of the Commonweal Foundation. Professor Alsnauer and President Emeritus O'Brien, I invite you to unmute yourselves and to turn on your screens. It's a pleasure to be with you all tonight, and I want to make sure I thank uh, Lumen Christie, especially Thomas Levergood, for the idea of this conversation. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to having this time to talk to Dennis about his life. So I hope we're going to cover a lot of ground. Um, from your education at, uh, at Yale and the University of Chicago, through your teaching at Princeton and Middlebury, and then your service as president at both Bucknell University and the University of Rochester. But I thought it would make sense to start at the beginning. So uh, you were born on the south side of Chicago in 1931, if I have that right. That's right. Just, could you say something about your parents and what it was like to grow up Catholic in the 1930s and 40s on the south side? Well, I, I could start even better I can start with my grandfather, who was named Dennis O'Brien, which is the name I go by. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was an immigrant from Ireland. And my, <coughs> my father <coughs> was, was an Irish Catholic. And the South of Chicago was <coughs> full of Irish Catholics. And my father would no, <laughs> no more stop being a Catholic than he would stop being Irish. It was part of a sort of ethnic reality for people. <laughs> bad start but uh yeah south we were lived in south shore we had a beautiful church in saint philip near I. I went to the catholic grade school with the dominican nuns and then went on to high school in in chicago and the south side at leo high school so i had a very catholic education and most of our friends were catholics i never thought there was anything else well, I did because my mother's father was a congregational minister. And when we would visit with him, I'd have to go to the congregational church as well as the Sunday mass. <coughs> so that was what the, that was the milieu that I grew up with until I got it went off to Yale. So that's that's a capsulate capsulization of where I was. And this was like these are the last Catholic institutions that you will be educational institutions that you'll be in for your whole career. I thought I would spend a moment on this. So, so if you said St. Philip Neri uh, is where you went for grammar school and then Leo Catholic High School, is that correct? And this- Right, Leo High School, taught by the Christian Brothers of Ireland. Taught by the Christian Brothers and of Ireland. Great group they were. And this is the same high school that Andrew McKenna was, it was, it was he uh, there at the same time that you were? Who? Andrew McKenna. Oh yeah, Andy was a year ahead of me, yep. He was yep. ahead of you. And so there's just, a, so this is a big, healthy Catholic community um, that you're going to leave very shortly to go to Yale. Absolutely. And my father had uh, grown up in Hartford, Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut, and went to Clark University, which had been just shortly before that founded by Jonas Clark. It's a place for poor boys. And since oh. his father was a, uh, worked in the tobacco fields, they were certainly poor, he and his brother. And he wanted me to go to an Eastern college. Uh, that was the, 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 the family idea. And so I applied to only my mother. My father was away in the war. My mother applied to every college or got a catalog from every college from Duke to Dartmouth. And uh, so the question was, which one of those ones would you like to apply to? And I applied to Yale in the long run. I did not apply to any Catholic schools. That's interesting. I mean, and you, do you remember that being a conscious decision not to apply to them, or was it just some, not something that came up? No, I thought I really didn't think going to college was a very good idea. I thought high school was tough, tough enough. What was I going to learn when I went to college? But your parents are sometimes very useful uh, in, in involving you in the right choice. And it was pretty clear to me that I was going to go to college. That was it. 
And when it came around to uh, the question of applying to Yale, and uh, as typical of those days, the brothers did not want to send my transcript from Leo High School to Yale because you were going to lose your faith. Oh. My father had to threaten to sue them in order they could uh, send the send the transcript along. But uh -huh. when I finally got admitted, I was admitted to Yale. I was also admitted to Dartmouth because I thought I'd never get into Yale. Mm -hmm. I, after I took the SAT scores test, I thought, well, I, I went came back from the exam and I said to my folks, forget about the Yale thing. Then my father got very desperate and uh, started to pull some strings because he was very influential among the clergy and in Chicago, and I got admitted to Notre Dame at the last moment. So I was to the point where I could have gone to Notre Dame or I could have gone to Yale, and I didn't know which one to do. But again, there was a parental sense, you go to Yale. So that's what I did. So you followed their advice. And so you get to Yale, and I was thinking this, so the time you're at Yale is around the time when Buckley's God and Man at Yale comes out. And he gives a very negative picture of how accommodating Yale was to religious students. And I was wondering if you could say something about what your experience was like being there, being Christian, being Catholic um, at Yale in this period. Well, let me say that the first, uh, the first week I was at Yale, Father O'Brien invited all the freshmen to come and uh, meet the most important man on campus at Yale at that time who was William F. Buckley. So the first person I saw was a Catholic was William F. Buckley. I don't remember a word that, that Bill Buckley said, but I assume he probably made somewhat of the same argument he made at um, uh, Man and uh, God at Yale. Uh, and th that came out when I, was a, uh, when I was a junior. The thing I noticed at first and has now come to be more um, reflection and interesting fact, uh, everybody was assigned a roommate. And I was in a room uh, in a, in a uh, uh, dormitory with four other guys, three other guys, and we were all Catholic. Across the hall were four other guys. They were all Jewish. Mm -hmm. And I had the sense that we had been sort of segregated out. Uh, my sense was, if I go back, make a, a big statement. David Reisman once said to me, the only person who should go to Harvard is a Catholic from upstate New York. And I wasn't a Catholic from upstate New York, but I was a Catholic from South Chicago, right in the, in the, the basic world of Catholicism. And I was off at Yale. And I think what, what David was concerned about at that time is there was a sense of the university was going to deparochialize you. Mm -hmm. We're gonna broaden you. We're gonna challenge all the things you believe. Yeah. And Friesman's idea was, that's a good idea if you start off by leaving, believing something. But if you don't have any belief, if you don't come from a parish, then you look like this is just a smorgasbord of ideas. I felt very unusual being a Catholic at Yale. It was clear this was not a Catholic institution. It was clear that uh, Catholics were there, uh, mm -hmm. but I didn't see them on the faculty. I felt now in retrospect, I can see what the Blacks feel about not having enough black faculty members. I took my senior seminar with Bill Wimsett because Wimsett was a Catholic and I wanted to see if one of the guys, one of our guys could do what everybody else had been doing during the three years I was at Yale. So it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of negative experience that, that Buckley I thought talked about. I mean, he was pretty flamboyant about that. Uh, and, but it, it was certainly always a challenge as to where you are. Now, because I ma majored in English at Yale, uh, the English department at that time was in a very Christian mood. Everybody was reading T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, and so forth. Well, I had read not those guys, but I knew at least the biblical background and so forth that they alluded to. So I could, I could handle some of that material more easily than some of my good secular friends who had no... Uh, Christian background at all. But uh, Yale was just sort of, well, there's an anecdote that I think is true. Uh, in my junior year, John Courtney Murray was invited to uh, the faculty as a visiting professor. Mm -hmm. And the story is that Whitney Griswold, the then president, uh, stayed up nights after nights wondering if they could appoint a Jesuit to the Yale faculty. So 
uh, it gives you a sense of the fact that Catholicism was really fringy Christian, if you wanted uh, that, and rather suspect. And what did you work on with, with Wimsat when you were there? I mean, he's one of the major figures of new criticism, and so kind of a le legendary figure. Absolutely. He was a legendary figure in my life. He, we have, I still have in my possession about a 55-page single-spaced mimeograph list of the uh, suggested readings in that course, which included, among other things, the Patrologia Latina at Greca, just in case you didn't have anything else to do in your spare time. Mm -hmm. I didn't make it through the whole thing. And what did you end up writing on then for your, with him or with you? Did you do a BA thesis with him or? No, I didn't do a thesis, which I'm sorry. I didn't, I, I, as I've often felt really up to the present day practically, I don't know quite why I'm in the academic world. I don't really feel all that qualified for this stuff. I was doing very well at Yale. I was a junior five eight and all that sort of stuff, but I still couldn't say, what the heck would I write a thesis about? And one of the things I do criticize Yale for at that time, nobody took me in hand and said, you really ought to do this. And because in that case, I would have, I would have uh, graduated with summa cum laude because you had to do a thesis to do that. I had all the, I was one of the three top scores in the, in the exams, but uh, without a thesis, you could only be cum laude. Not that I feel too badly about that, but uh, I really wish I'd done that. It might've given me more confidence. So, anyhow, so what were your plans after Yale? I mean, what did you think you were going to do? I mean, you had an English degree and eventually in a couple of years- I had no idea exactly what I would do. One of the things in my Catholic experience, which we've not spoken of, is I went to Catholic boys camp for 10 years, five years as a, a, a camper uh, and five years as a counselor. I was champion camper one year and all that stuff. And I loved the priests there. The, the Norbertine fathers who ran the place. I got to know them really well. Uh, they were seemed to be great guys. It was an idea when you're 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, you wonder what it's like to be an adult. And my father was away in the war. Uh, I'm a only child. So these guys were really kind of wonderful uh, substitute father figures. And that influenced me a great deal. Now we come to the end of my academic career, what am I going to do? And I had taken a course in religion when I was a junior and I'd read Kierkegaard. And all of a sudden I thought, gee whiz, that stuff that father, that uh, brother O'Hare was teaching us at Leo has a deeper meaning than I had thought. And I got very interested in that, asked the faculty member, are there any Catholics to do that sort of thing? And he put me on to Gabriel Marcel, who I started to read at that point. When I got to the end of my college career, I thought I would be a priest. I, would, I had even applied to seminary. I'd gone around, talked to various places, the possible places to go, thought of different orders and so forth. So that's I thought what I was going to do to the absolute abominable horror of my family. So but anyhow, that was where it was. However, uh, I had been, I had been, uh, uh, on a Rhodes Scholarship uh, interview in my senior year, which I didn't get. I think the reason that they appealed to them was I, they asked you as a question in the Rhodes Scholarship, what do you want to do? What's your aim in life? I said, I want to be the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago. <laughs> uh, and I suspect that very few Rhodes Scholars candidates had ever said that. That evidently impressed them enough. They didn't give me the Rhodes Scholarship, but I got word that you ought to apply again next year. So I thought, well, maybe, you know, if I'm going to apply again for a Rhodes Scholarship, you really ought not to pass that up in life. And if I'm going off to seminary, um, I really don't think I'll get very good philosophy in the seminary. I was my suspicion largely developed from my father's conversations on that score. So here I am, my parents had moved to an apartment immediately next to the University of Chicago. So I said, I think I'll take some philosophy courses at the University of Chicago. So that's what I did. I started to take some philosophy courses. During the year, uh, I did another review with the Rhodes Scholarship. But by that time, I wasn't so sure I wanted to be the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago. Well, I would have liked to have done it. But somehow, mm -hmm. they're going through the whole priesthood thing seemed a little bit more. Plus the fact, if I may say one thing, this was the first time since grammar school that I had been in a college situation where there were women. 
So, you know, all male Leo High School, all male Yale. I, and I, the women had changed quite a bit since grammar school. So I started to date and see people and, and see women and so forth. And that was a new experience for me. So I wasn't really sure that I was cut out entirely for the priesthood. I didn't get the road scholarship. So there I was in the philosophy department. I thought, well, I'm stuck with it. I guess I better hang in. Maybe I can do this kind of thing, which is what I did. I stuck there and finally got a degree. Well, it's a really interesting philosophy department with some, some I mean, still some names that are still recognizable like Hartshorn, but you end up working with the really difficult Richard McCann. And I was wondering what attracted you to him in particular? Well, it started off, I had a buddy in Yale who would majored in philosophy. He studied with Paul Weiss at Yale and he got some word back. I, so I wrote to him and I said, I'm thinking of uh, staying on and doing philosophy at University of Chicago. What do your Yale friends say about that? Oh, they said, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. They're not interested in philosophy at the University of Chicago. They're only interested in the history of philosophy. So, as somebody who knows nothing about philosophy, I'd had two courses in philosophy, once as a freshman and once as a senior when I was at Yale. And I really know nothing about the standard philosophical literature, but I make an appointment to go and see Richard McKeon, who is presumably, according to the Yale people, the uh, person who has created this sense of this, only the history of philosophy, not philosophy. And so knowing nothing, I go to see McKeon, not knowing him, not knowing anything, so I say, I'm thinking of majoring in your department, uh, but I'm told by people at Yale that I shouldn't because you are only interested in the history of philosophy and you're not really doing philosophy. Well, McKeon gave one of his characteristic snorts at that point, and then for the next 20 minutes, explained to me why it was absolutely upside down, that it was those people who were interested in the history of philosophy, that he was the one who was really interested in philosophy. I didn't understand what he was saying, though he was absolutely correct. I'm now convinced that after 50 years of experience that he was correct, but I didn't understand it at the time, but I thought it was good enough that if I got that much defense, I would stay on. And so uh, then I, I got in the department and of course McKeon, there, it was an interesting department. Charles Hartshorn was in the department at that time. Rudolf Carnap was supposedly in the department, but he was never there when I was there. He was always on leave. Um, has, uh, but the dominant figure, without a doubt, was McKeon. It, it was it, the people who were other people like Warner Wick, uh, Alan Gewirth, Herbert Lamb, and so forth, were all McKeon students or disciples even. And so you couldn't escape the sense that this was the dominant intellect uh, in the department. And if you wanted to really challenge yourself, he, you, you do your uh, thesis. Manny Thompson was another one, wonderful fellow. So, so I had a question of like, you talked a little bit about how the vibrant intellectual life of the students. And I mean, I think this is the place you met your wife here too, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And so what, what were the kinds of, I mean, this is the fifties. And so, you know, I imagine that the cold war is starting to come into focus. Like what was the, you know, what were the issues that were exercising the student mind, the graduate student mind? In the well, I'll tell you what was exercising our student, the student mind the clique that I went with. One of the things that struck me when I got to Chicago was the number of Catholic graduate students. Mm -hmm. Catholics, ex-Catholics, practicing Catholics, non-practicing Catholics, escaping Catholics, but they were all stuck in some ways with the Catholic thing. And so there were a group of us, well, I must have been a half a dozen or more, who, uh, Germain Grise was one of the people, although he was not a member of our immediate group because of his life situation. But we would go down to the university tavern and talk about Catholicism and philosophy at great length. So if you ask me what we talked about, I suppose we talked about the politics and the wars and so forth, but basically it was talking about Catholicism and of course philosophy. I mean, you, you, you go down there and you try to figure out what, are, what was McKeon up to this week, something that sort of thing. But the debates among the Catholics was I thought one of the most interesting aspects of my life because I was still trying to figure out I hadn't become a priest, but what was I going to be, where was I going to come, where was Catholicism going to come out, out of all of this, or was Catholicism going to be abandoned, as some of the other people did, sometimes very bitterly. 
How hospitable was Chicago to I was thinking that like there's really no place you it's really hard to find a place where you could study Kierkegaard even now in a philosophy department. It's a rare thing. And so I'm wondering like how hospitable an environment it was for somebody who came into it already interested in existentialist like approaches to religion and philosophy. Well, that was a kind of that had only been a kind of open door to me. I had to assume I didn't know whether they liked Kierkegaard or Marcel. They didn't. Uh, I know the McKeon was not very Marcel had He'd met Marcel on the boat someplace coming across the ocean and read uh, the manuscript of the Mystery of Being. And I told, he told me he didn't think much of it. But it was the standard stuff. I mean, it was the, the big guys. The reason that the, I think the Catholics had all come there was if you looked at the scenario of philosophy in the United States at that time, it was dominated by logical positivism of some kind or another. And it was at Chicago that they were really interested in the history of philosophy. That is, maybe Thomas Aquinas, whom they thought of as the, the obvious uh, leading and uh, official philosopher of Chicago, of, of the Catholic Church, would have a fair play there. They could, it, the fact that they, there was an attention to the history of philosophy at least gave a place for a number of Catholic philosophers of the past to be heard. And if you went to, uh, Stanley Cavell talks about going to Los Angeles, uh, UCLA, dominated by logical positivists, and he couldn't stand it. It was just not his kind of philosophy. If I'd gone to a place like that, I would have had to drop out or do something totally different. But Chicago was at least, they were interested in history and you can't be a Catholic and not be interested in history. Period. You, you, you wrote at Princeton right after Chicago, and that had to have been a culture shock in some ways, because Princeton, of course, was a lot more in that analytic. Mo I mean, we had Hillary Putnam, and and yeah, uh, it was a, it was a total shock because at Chicago, I characterize it. Chicago, it seemed that philosophy had stopped. It ended with Bertrand Russell, and mm -hmm. with uh, at Princeton, it started with Bertrand Russell, and uh, there were people very hard nosed, people like Hillary. Uh, but even the analytic guys were very much that way. And certainly the graduate students that I met were very, very much in some kind of a, a sense of we're going to do philosophy absolutely the right way. Uh, Cavell, whom I like a lot, says the, the voice of philosophy should not be arrogant. And it seemed to me there was a lot of arrogance in the sense I now know exactly what philosophy really is. And here it is. And you're going to take it. The most congenial person to talk to, I found when I was there, with some exceptions, was strangely enough, Carl Hempel, who was from the old Vienna Circle and was a real positivist, but a real mensch. And uh, he was, you could talk to him about anything. You ended up engaging with him a lot in your Hegel book, which I you know, you wrote right. 15 years later, which is one of the impressive and interesting things about that is bringing Hegel to bear on some of these contemporary discussions. Yeah, well, that, with uh, uh, Peter Hempel, as he was called, uh, had done this covering law theory for history. And that was something about how history was supposed to develop and be understood. And I didn't think that that was uh, all that could be said about history, certainly not what Hegel had to say. But one of the reasons why Hegel was not studied was because uh, Peter's general view about Hegel's view, Hegel's about history, precluded the possibility of doing anything like what Hegel was trying to do in his philosophy of history. And so what did you, what were you teaching at Princeton then while you were there? Well, I taught all kinds of things. I taught a course in metaphysics and uh, I thought maybe it was going to be the last course in metaphysics that they were ever going to teach there. It's a metaphysics was a bad word uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so forth. I taught the elementary Plato course, which had been taught for years by people like Walter Stace. Uh, it was the introduction everybody uh, at Princeton who was taking uh, philosophy taught that. I precepted, as they call it, at Princeton in all kinds of courses, including Walter Kaufman's course. Walter was, uh, wrote a book on the critique of philosophy and religion, and critique was really the right word, particularly with religion, he, uh, and particularly with Christianity. He was savage on Christianity and savage on people like Kierkegaard and so forth. He thought was a real fool. Uh, and uh, that was hard, I thought, uh, that uh, because I just, as someone who was precepting in that course, he was lecturing and saying one thing, and I was saying something else uh, in, the, in the precepts and so forth. It was, however, of course, 
being at Princeton that led me to finally write my doctor's dissertation on Wittgenstein because Wittgenstein, uh, Wittgenstein's books had not been published yet. You could get a mimeographed copy of the blue book and the brown book uh, from the departmental secretary. It was kept under lock and key and you could have read it overnight. So I was able to read it in an early version at that point. But Wittgenstein's influence was very large. George Pitcher was there and written on Wittgenstein. And I thought, well, I'll throw him in. Maybe they'll find me a key to getting into the, uh, the world at Princeton. Well, I understand it was hard to escape with a PhD from Chicago and that you, had to, that you have a story about how your dissertation got accepted. Yes. That was, a, that was a big problem, and it always has been uh, at Chicago and Columbia. When I was at the at University of Rochester and attending the meetings of the American Association of Universities, they would, they would bring up these statistics about how long it took to get a PhD. Well, at Columbia and Chicago, it was like 10 years, and other places it was four to five years. And there were a lot of reasons for that that can be explained. But when in my own particular case, I was writing a typical McKeon-esque thesis which as I said, uh, involved three different philosophers. That was a typical McKeon thing. You wanted to show that these philosophers who were very disparate somehow could talk to one another. And mine was gonna be Wittgenstein, John Dewey, and Gabriel Marcel. And uh, I showed that material to McKeon. In the meantime, McKeon had developed some other piece of machinery for his uh, methodological system. He asked me, I had put that in the thesis. Now I don't know what I'm supposed to do. In the meantime, I thought that the stuff I'd written on Wittgenstein was pretty good. So I showed it to Manley Thompson, who is more in that world. And Manley said, that's really pretty good. Um, why don't you just expand that a little bit and submit that as a thesis? Well, at this point, I had one last year at Princeton. This is the days where you get a job without a PhD degree. Mm -hmm. One last year, I either had to produce a PhD or I was out of a job. And I was already had two children and married and so forth. I thought, that'd be a good idea. I really like to get this out of the way. <laughs> so I talked to McKeon about it. And McKeon said, no, that's an historical thesis. We don't accept historical theses in this department. I'll vote against it in your doctor's and in in your thesis uh, committee review. So I thought, well, that's not too good news. So I went to Thompson and I said, what am I supposed to do now? And he said, well, McKeon's going to be on leave next year at the Stanford Institute for whatever it is. So you submit it to me and we'll go right through. At that point, Mark, I think I must have known I was going to be an administrator. Oh, the, that early? It, yeah. Well, in the sense <laughs> that getting a PhD thesis done is not just a question of what you're right. It's being able to maneuver the situation you find yourself in, in a very practical way. And so that's exactly what happened. And the thesis was very happily accepted and I think they thought very highly of it. So I have a question like I was just thinking like so what did you find like so the, if Princeton represents like the rising of a certain mode of doing philosophy a very analytic mode of doing philosophy right. and Chicago the way you describe it in a way was something that was a lot more open to the history of philosophy. Right. Which of these climates were like were, were a better place to to pursue religious questions and religious and the, the themes that you got interested in philosophy for the first place in the first place? Clearly, I, Chicago would be the place to, I, I believe, because the question that's being asked by analytic philosophy, when it's asked of religion and of uh, divine matters, uh, supernatural matters, or whatever you want to call them, is very quickly settled by the fact that show me the facts. Mm -hmm. You have to have a sense of the very different modalities in which the problem of religion and God and morality have been treated in the philosophical tradition. After all, this was the days where the moral tradition was dominated by people like Charles Stevenson and so forth, who were writing articles about the so-called boo-hooray theory of morality. Morality was simply mm -hmm. an expression of what you felt at the particular time. You say murder, boo, you know, love, ray, uh, and uh, there was no intellectual background to it. And so you, if you were studying the history of philosophy, you got that. Uh, I wouldn't say that my colleagues at Princeton were at all that as much as Charles Stevenson might have been, but uh, there was that mood that philosophy had now found exactly how to handle all these problems. And that's something I, I don't believe now and I didn't believe then.
So after Princeton, you, you teach at Middlebury College for a spell, like maybe 10 or 12 years. And by the end of that period, you are full on in the administration. And so, so what was what led you to make those decisions to to leave research well, as such and go into some with, some with practicality? I didn't think I was going to get tenure at because uh, I wasn't be able I wasn't able to produce the kind of books and so forth. I had written some things for the Harvard Theological Review, but that doesn't count a lot at, at the Princeton Philosophy Department. Uh, but I had been asked uh, at various times to take a whole set of levels of administrative positions, starting with uh, advising the students in the philosophy department about what courses they ought to take. Then I was put on the, on, uh, the board of advisors for the university. And then I was asked to be the assistant dean of the college at Princeton. So I'm now in an administrative role and I, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching part-time, but I'm also uh, working in, in uh, administration. And people used to say to me, Dennis, being assistant dean of the college must be, it's a nice idea. What, what do you do? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm the dean of dropouts. I had to deal with every student who dropped out of Princeton or flunked out. And long story about that. And I've never seen so many young men cry in my life as when I had announced that they were going to leave Princeton. <laughs> and what struck me at the time was none of these kids was unqualified for the Princeton education. They all had all the smarts, but something was going on in their life which precluded that possibility. And that's one of the things that I've always been interested in, deeply interested in, is the sort of sociological, psychological background of students, which makes them either be able to perform or not be able to perform within the university. So I got very interested in administration uh, and uh, it so happened that uh, one of my uh, hallmates at uh, Nassau Hall had been appointed president of Middlebury College. They were expanding the college because you could do that in those days. And he wanted to hire a lot of new people. And so he hired me as a dean. Uh, I started off as the lowly uh, title of dean of men. So I thought I was going to, have to spend my time in the fraternity houses, and I was told, no, 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 the dean of men, these are the good old days, the dean of women takes care of all the fraternities, the dean of men is the academic dean. I said, okay, I can do that. So, so once I'm into that, and I needed a job after uh, that, uh, it paid reasonably well uh, compared to what I was getting at Princeton, and I could still teach philosophy. So I thought, I really do like administration, and uh, I'll be glad to do it. So in 76, you get hired away from, from Middlebury to be the president at Bucknell, at a, a traditionally Baptist school, a historically Baptist school. And eventually you'll be president at the University of Rochester, also a historically Baptist school. Was there any hesitation people had in hiring a, a Catholic president for a secular? Well, I was, well, I'll give you two anecdotes on that. One is I was being reviewed by a very prestigious, uh, I had a lot of presidential reviews during the time I was at, at Middlebury. And this was a very prestigious Eastern college. And one of the questions was asked by the, the search committee, which I discovered later from a friend of mine at Swarthmore, was, was the fact that Mr. O'Brien is a Catholic has that interfered with the performance of his duties, which I thought was a little bit cheeky because, you know, you look at the fact I'd been already corrupted by all these secular universities <laughs> <laughs> that they could have taken me on faith. There was some question, I believe, at the Bucknell board, not so much about Catholicism, although there was some of that, but there had been a, the, the ministerium in Lewisburg, they had always had the long succession, of course, of ministerial presidents, but the, the local ministerium had requested the board of trustees to get somebody who had, was religiously interested and would you know, be a positive person, president in a positive religious views. And so when they brought me up, well, I do have positive religious views, but maybe they weren't exactly what the ministerium was thinking about given an old uh, uh, Baptist institution. So there was a little bit of kerfuffle. I think it had nothing to do really deeply with religion. I think there were some other internal candidates who were hoping that there would be a reversal as in the current administration and the Trump administration. I was the one recommended by the search committee, but that wasn't going to be good enough because they somebody had a friend in the in the inside, and they were you ought to be the president. So, 
Well, so. it's also rare to have a philosopher as a university pr president. And I was you've spent so much of your life thinking and writing about the university that I was wondering if you were, were you surprised at how much you could do or, or how little you could do as university president? How little? How little? How little, yeah. What did you uh, think you could accomplish? I was a good friend of Springfellow Bar because uh, he was living in Princeton when I was there. And he was, of course, the founder of the St. John's College uh, Great Books Program. And I said to him, Winky, because that was his nickname, Winky, how in the world did you ever get away with that? Well, he said, Paul Mellon, I think, was the chairman of the board. And he came to him and St. John's had been there all along. It was a regular, ordinary, or liberal arts college and said to him, well, Mr. Barr, if you're going to be president, this place is absolutely broke. You can do anything you want. So if you're founding a college or you're in that kind of situation where you've got to refound a college, as, as Barr did, you can get away with a lot. I don't know how Hutchins got away with what he did at Chicago, but it was a remarkable thing. I I reviewed Hutch two or three books on Hutchins over a period of time. And in some ways, <laughs> he had many personal flaws, but he was one person who thought very seriously about what is a university all about? And mm -hmm. I think that's a question that's not asked very often. The University of Vermont here in Vermont, where we are today, where I am today, has just announced that they're going to uh, close 23 majors, mostly in the humanities and social sciences. And why are they doing that? They don't have enough students taking the courses. Well, uh, as a former university president, I know the problem of balancing the budget. But are we going to end up with the universities where what is being taught is simply a question of the consumer wants to do this because they get a job at the end? Or is the university able to say, look, there are things you really have got to know if you're going to move into adulthood, responsible adulthood. And these are things that you, we're, we're going to teach you whether you like it or not, and whether you don't get that uh, STEM curriculum uh, until your junior year. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's very difficult for, for a president to come in and make really curricular type changes. You can do a certain amount in terms of controlling departments, although if you get a very fixed department, I had one department at one school, which I shall not name, which was composed entirely of Marxists, except for the ones who were Maoists. And <laughs> so... I said to the chairman one day, wouldn't, wouldn't it be a good idea to hire somebody like a mainline Keynesian? Oh, he said it'd break up the sense of community in the department. I thought, well, but you can't even do that, uh, you know, reach in and you can, you can try to persuade, you can do things, but it's, it's, it can be tough for a university president. Rochester was even more difficult in some sense because uh, with many schools, the dean is really the most important person when it comes to being able to shape the curriculum of a college of arts and science. So McKeon was the dean who shaped the curriculum that I taught in when I taught Hume three at the University of Chicago. Oh. It was his curriculum. And so it was a very philosophically structured curriculum. Most curriculums are put together as a political job uh, between various departments. I got to have my elementary course because if they don't take my elementary course, they may never take my advanced courses. Uh, I, I, I just don't have a great deal of faith in the capacity of most universities to really ask the question, what are you, what is the existential responsibility of the university uh, in the society in which they live? Or to the students who they're educating? Yeah, I was looking over some of your writings on this and I was very, um, I thought it was, it's very powerful, like the, the way that you are able to bring some of the existential philosophy to bear on thinking through what it would be to be a Catholic university. Um, and I was wondering, one thing that you say, and I thought this would be like maybe the last question I'd ask you, is that like, you're, you're, you're very clear in some of the things you've written that there's a tension between like the Christian prophetic uh, view, a certain way of thinking of, of being a Christian, being committed to being a Christian, and no. university's more academic mission. And you've written very eloquently about how that tension is to be negotiated. But I was wondering if like right now, and I think you, you've said things like this, you've suggested things like this before, whether the competition isn't between two different prophetic 
you know, models of the university. And that the university isn't right now really rethinking what it is to be a university. And it's not really sure if it's gonna land on a more academic understanding of its mission or a mission that's really more committed to certain sorts of social ideals. And I was wondering like, with, does, does that seem like a new thing to you or something that you already you recognize from your time? Well, I, I mean, in a very sketchy overall way, uh, the advent of the research university at the end of the second, uh, uh, at the end of the uh, 19th century, really is a, a, a radical change in the idea of higher education in America. Before that, it was all Christian, biblical, and so forth, classical studies, and so forth. Very historically oriented, very, these are the good things you really got to know. Then you turn to a model which is really scientific. It's not the past, but it's discovery that counts. It's the future. We're going to discover something out there, uh, discover a cure, a vaccine for, uh, for COVID-19. So that's the kind of emphasis. The influx of that sort of scientific sensibility into the, into the university, and that becomes the prestige view. And I have the greatest respect for science. I think it's just one of the most marvelous examples of the use of the human mind. But it's not the only way in which one appropriates reality. So it gives the humanities a sense of, if they're really going to do humanities, a sense of, gee, we're kind of second-class citizens. How do we justify ourselves? Sometimes you try to justify yourself by a kind of quasi-scientific argument. That's not going to work, uh, at least in my judgment. So it's, it's very difficult. The university has really adopted a certain kind of overall philosophy. Uh, that makes it much more difficult for the humanities to find a place. Thank you very much for your time. I found this okay, very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for your questions. So I appreciate it. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to transition to um, taking some questions from the audience. And so I'm going to try to read the, you know, the, the shorter the better, I will tell you, and I will see what I can uh, I can, I can bring to bear. So this is a question from um, an anonymous attendee. So is it still possible to go against the grain standing up for Catholicism in a university these days? Yes, I think so. And I must say that I think the reason for that, and if you look for it and press it, is the, uh, the uh, rise of the specialty views, especially studies like black studies, uh, women's studies and so forth. Uh, it is a, uh, a way of saying, look, I've got to look at this through a particular lens. You wouldn't want to have a women's study program which is completely uh, staffed by men or a black studies program completely staffed by white people. So the idea that Catholicism has a particular way of looking at the world uh, it seems to me is uh, a, legitimate, a legitimate way of raising questions about the university uh, itself and whether the model of the absolute neutral mind out there, the, the Cartesian mind out there is the only mind that can discover truth. Sometimes you need the perspective of a woman or a black or a Latino or somebody who comes from a particular religious tradition. There was a plus at the, uh, one of the New York universities recently where a, uh, a Catholic was appointed as the chair of the Jewish studies program. And the local rabbis objected to that. Well, you know, he's a great, he was a great scholar and so forth, but you would think you really, at some point, if you don't live the life, do you really get the whole story? And so I think if you're going to do Catholic studies, and I don't see why Catholic studies should not be a legitimate part of a university curriculum. It has a pretty long history to go, go through. Uh, I won't expand on that one. I have a funny anecdote, but I won't. Do you want to get to another question? Yeah, I'm going to try to abbreviate. This next one's a little bit longer. I'll try to abbreviate it a little bit. Um, well, I was interviewing uh, someone for a Catholic studies program, and uh, she was a wonderful candidate. And I, it was actually someone you know. And at the end of their, her lecture, I said to her, it was a wonderful lecture, it was, uh, moral theology or moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, but this is a this is a chair in Catholic studies. We'd really like you to, could you do something, you know, in the patristic period or anything in the earlier? Oh, she said, I'm a Vatican II Catholic. I don't know anything before that. 
Well, bless her. She knows a lot. But, uh, you know, I think, I think that, uh, that, you know, Catholicism has this long, extraordinary rich history of art, music, literature, philosophy. There's a question about just that. You said something, there, there's somebody, Tom Parisi is quoting you, you can't be a Catholic and not be interested in history. And so he asks you, can you say more about what you mean by this? Does this not apply to Protestants, Jews? Uh, because you believe something happened in the past, which determines your present life. I, one of the, in the book I wrote on the Catholic University, the chapter that I think caught the attention of the University of Chicago Press was I did a Einsteinian thought experiment and talked about a Holocaust university. If you were a Jewish, Jewish community that wanted to set up a university, uh, you would want to remember the Holocaust. It might be because you think that's the marker of Jewish history. The marker of Jewish history has been uh, defeat, denial, uh, destruction, uh, and so on. And that's, so you better watch out about that. Now, I don't think that is the mark of Jewish history. The mark of Jewish history is really the Exodus. I'm the God who will take you out of, out of slavery. But you, if, you, if you believe that something happened in the past, which carries through your experience of the present day, like the French Revolution does for France to this day, uh, you know, when, when uh, Henry Kissinger asked Mao uh, Zhou Enlai about the French Revolution, what he thought about it, he says, it's not over yet. And so you have to go back to what was the initiating event that has caused all that. And then once you get the initiating event, you've got the, the tradition that's going to go after it. One of the problems I think with Catholicism is not historically oriented enough. Mm -hmm. Reviewing a book of John Noonan's uh, at one time, I said, the Catholic Church is an unusual institution which believes in tradition, but not in history. Here's another question about the tr how the Catholic tradition might have figured in your own um, administrating. Um, this Chris Butterill asks whether ex corde ecclesiae played a part in your uh, administration or in your thinkings about being a president? Uh, well, <laughs> I wrote an essay on ex corde ecclesiae. Uh, it was it was one of those things where if you read the footnotes, it really didn't cut anywhere. Uh, it wasn't it, it was it was a kind of exhortation ex exhortation on the part of the Pope that uh, Catholic institutions should be Catholic. I think they should be Catholic. But when it came to what do you do? Do you have to hire Catholics? Is there some sort of quota and so on and so forth? You have to have approval to teach Catholic studies and so forth. You could have derived some of those things. Uh, but for instance, one of the things was that you ought to appoint a Catholic professor unless you can't find one. You know, you're, you want an astrophysicist, but you can't find any Catholic astrophysicist at the present time. So there was an almost, <laughs> the essay I wrote for America was it was, uh, it was looking at governing by the footnotes because everything that was said positively was uh, something that was taken out of the footnotes. So I don't think that, it, I don't think it was very helpful for Catholic universities. It was a little too a directive in one hand and then not directive enough. The, the problem of Catholic universities uh, is, is a significant one. You, you don't want to have an institution which purports to be Catholic in which there is no expression within the curriculum of Catholicism. I don't think you want to have a Catholic university uh, which would be uh, completely uh, taught by non-Catholics. Any more than you would want to have a black university or a historically black college in which it was all taught by white people or a women's college. Uh, somehow or other, living that experience, having to suffer through the good and the bad of the Catholic experience is something you've got to bring to the fore, bring to what you're saying. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't seem to me that you're, you're, you're talking about Catholicism as a thing out there, not as something that's lived. And Catholicism has got to be something that has to be lived, as any religion has to be lived. There's a couple questions I'm going to try to bring together into a single question about, I guess, what you might call ideological 
threats to the modern university. And one of them is about the, what your opinion is about the dominance of Marxist thought in the academy today, which you alluded to a little bit before. And the other one is about nihilism and quotes George Marsden in The Soul of the American University, who, who wrote that nihilism disorients and destabilizes civilization and culture, leading to a vacuum in which the worst elements um, pour in. And that it was some kind of disunity that allows them to flourish. And this person was asking you whether you, if disunity is the problem, how unity could be achieved. Well, on Marxism, uh, I have had experience with an institution where Marxism was very much alive and, uh, and, and so on. And I thought, uh, unfortunately, uncritically, that is they didn't, they didn't bring any uh, counter views uh, to, to the table, which I thought, would have improved their Marxism considerably. Maybe it would have improved the university as well. Mm -hmm. uh, just as I think in a Catholic university, you don't want to have a, 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 a completely Catholic faculty where you have uh, authority uh, dictating who's going to say what. You want to have, as I think Notre Dame has and most Catholic universities, have a variety of different scholars from different religious traditions, non-religious traditions, and so forth. I'm not particularly worried about Marxism and in higher education, I was at an institution with a business school, which I assure you was not Marxist one bit at all. <laughs> and, uh, I, I don't see it. People may think that universities are Marxist, but uh, that's, that, I don't know quite the, quite the thrust of that question. On nihilism, yes, I do tend to worry about that for the reason that my initial question, quotation from David Reisman, if you start off with a parish, a, a hardcore parish view of yourself and what life is all about, then I think the university education is extraordinarily important to make that, to deepen that, to sophisticate it, to tell it how it's supposed to leave, uh, live with diversity. I think that's extraordinarily important. But if you just come in and you look at the university as a series of choices that I should take, uh, you know, Robert Benchy said, when he was at university, he never took a course that started before 10 o'clock or was on the second floor. Uh, and uh, you can take the courses that either are going to get you a job, so that is a kind of a trade school, or you take something that's entertaining and interesting, but it's not going to be anything that's going to affect your life. Uh, Nevitt Sanford said that when his great study of the American college, that the American college student is a convert to adultism a convert to it, a convert, converted convert to adultism. One of the functions of the college, the university, I think is to bring them from being converts to being believers and being adult. To believe in being adult is to find some sense of vocation, some sense of destiny in your life, some sense in which you're not just going from one entertainment to the other. And that's a form of nihilism you want. It's very pleasant, but, uh, Maybe it's just a Catholic background, but I do believe that people are better off if they are struggling to find some sort of direction and meaning in the very life that they're living. The next question is more, I think, more practical. Thank you for that. Um, so is the tension between teaching, and this is from Paul Hutchinson, or Hutchinson, between teaching and research a perennial problem for universities, or have we gone through a paradigm shift in terms of the primary purpose of a university? Is this problem uniform for all colleges or do different models and traditions, for example, liberal arts versus scientific versus vocational, have their specific issues and futures? That's a very long, very nice question. Uh, it, there are various things that could be said. Brown University did a study years ago about uh, the, whether good researchers were good teachers. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that most good researchers are also very good teachers. Uh, Peter Hempel at Princeton, who was a superb teacher and a great philosopher in his own way. So I think that, that, that the idea that research people who research are all dry as dust and so forth, that isn't true. Uh, but the problem is the direction of a university is where does it put its emphasis and interest? One of the reasons I think I was recruited to the University of Rochester was the university had an interesting development. Uh, it really started off as a university in 1850, but in 1900, when Rush Reese became president, it was still like his alma mater, uh, 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 an undergraduate liberal arts college. 
uh, like Amherst, which we graduated from. By the time Rush Reese had retired, it had a medical school, it had the Eastland School of Music, and uh, was a very different kind of institution. You can imagine, you know, somebody coming to Amherst and say, we're going to give you a medical school led by a Nobel Prize winning dean, and we're going to give you a, a, a music school led by a man who was won the Prix de Rome. This is a different institution out this way. And, but at the end of World War II, the university had not really developed much in the line of research. Because of Xerox money and other influences, that period uh, through the pres three or four presidencies developed very powerful, very effective research uh, capacity across the board. In the social sciences, the history department was a great department and so forth. But at the expense, in a way, of the energies of the institution being put to the undergraduates, it, was, it wasn't like Yale and Princeton and Harvard, which are, you know, they've been undergraduates for the thousands of years and so forth. And Princeton very carefully put the graduate school as far away from the undergraduates as they could. They didn't want to corrupt them. But there was a problem that, not that the, there was teaching going on, but somehow or other, the, the sense that the undergraduates were sort of not being paid enough attention to. Since my background had been undergraduate education, related to institutions like Middlebury, Princeton was heavy on that, Bucknell and so forth. I think that's one of the reasons I was recruited to come to Rochester and try to do something about undergraduate education. So you can, it's not a question of whether research is distracting. I don't think and it really ruins you for teaching. That's not the question. The question is how do you use the, the different aspects of that within the university culture. Uh, Chicago had this interesting thing, you know, you could be uh, appointed during the time I was there in the divisions, which was pure research, or uh, in the college, which you did teach college teaching. But there was a filter because it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was possible to move back and forth. You might occasionally, if you were an undergraduate teacher in the college, you might occasionally teach graduate course, Many people who were in the division also taught undergraduate courses. But the idea was there was a different kind of levels of assumption about where your principal interest was going to be, undergraduates or research. I have a question from Joseph Prabhu about a more contemporary issue. So if universities after the pandemic might be forced to go largely online, what do you think this might do to philosophy, which arguably requires intersubjectivity? This might be true, the question also for Lumen Christi events. What are they going to be like? We can't ever. <laughs> I, uh, I, don't, I, I don't think they will go online. I think if they do, uh, it will be a tremendous loss. Uh, we look very nice on television or on the video like this, but a live person in the room is just a different person than somebody you see visually. You see them on campus. You can run onto them in the in the uh, in the cafeteria. You see them in their office. Uh, if it's a small college, you they invite you over to their home. You find out they've got kids and a dog. Uh, it becomes a life experience in a way that just just having information passed to you uh, via video uh, is not satisfactory. You, I mean, this Zoom is simply a much more complicated form of a book. If you really want to be educated, there's a character in, in Sartre's Nausea, which you would know, the, who is an autodidact. He's reading through the entire library, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, at the end of which he will know a lot if he can remember any of it. Uh, and so if all you want to do is information transfer, this is a great way to do it. The ability to have a certain kind of dialogue uh, and uh, life experience uh, is, doesn't exist. And particularly for undergraduates, the, for undergraduates, the whole world of undergraduate education, if you are uh, in residence, even if you are not in residence, there's a sports program, there's, uh, there are dances, there are you know, uh, places to eat and so forth, where one of my good friends, Bob Freeman, who was head of the Eastman School, was a Harvard graduate. He said he learned more uh, at the uh, at the dinner table uh, at uh, Harvard than he thought he learned in the classes. And I would say that might be true also when I was in graduate school. I think I learned more from my fellow graduate students than I did from some of my faculty members who were pretty opaque. Uh, 
I, that's my experience too. Um, th there's an, another question. There's a question about uh, Catholic universities from Luis Carlos Ayala. Can a Catholic university maintain its Catholic identity? You know, for example, placing crucifixes in the classroom, talking about God without fear, and still be considered an intellectual power in academy in the academy. Yeah, I think a Catholic. Uh, what's your problem with what they? What's what's the? Uh, say that again in terms of what? The whether threat. there's a tension between like being firmly committed to Catholicism and being intellectually serious and powerful as an institution. Yeah. Well, what does it mean to be intellectually? To be my word, what does it mean to be committed to Catholicism? Being committed to Catholicism has its own peculiar meaning. It doesn't mean that you have to wait for some authority to say uh, this is what has to be believed. I don't think so. I'm not. I'm not a great hierarchical hierarchical person, and I've written books critical critical of what it is to be Catholic. How do you handle the Scripture? How do you handle the position of authority in the church? What is the authority of, of popes and bishops? Uh, those are not simple-minded issues. And so to be a Catholic is not to say, I'm waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. To be a Catholic is to have a bundle of ideas and scripts and practices, starting with the ceremonials practice of going to mass, the sacrifice of the mass itself, and saying, why do I do that? It's not clear why you do that, but you've got to start off. Wittgenstein said at one point that man is a ceremonial animal. And I think that Christianity and all religions, particularly Catholicism, is based in the idea of ceremony. People who don't have a ceremonial sense will never find out what it is that Catholicism is all about. But once you do a ceremony, then somebody could say, what was that all about? Now you have the problem of trying to say something. And it may or may not make sense of the ceremony you've just gone through. When the Catholics say that there's a real presence uh, in the sacrament, this is the real presence of Jesus in body and blood. As uh, Cardinal Ratzinger said years ago, you know, Catholics are not cannibals. Uh, and so you have to understand what is, what is religious language all about? It's not easy to figure out what religious language is all about. And so there's always a critical edge, a questioning edge, it seems to me, to what it is to be Catholic or Jewish or Muslim and whatever. Uh, and I, so it doesn't, it's never bothered me that, that somehow or other Catholicism is sort of a, such a closed system, like the internal revenue system, uh, that, uh, that you, couldn't, you couldn't criticize it. Most of my books have been very critical of things in in Catholicism, and I think because I say, I think this is what Catholicism is. Somebody else can tell me, no, I don't think that's what it is. Jerry Grise would tell me that from time to time. We have a question from a fellow alumnus of the University of Chicago, got a PhD there in political science in 1960. This is Peter Henriot, Society of Jesus. Is the future of university existence in the United States going to be only STEM? So what, what, what will require more humanistic influence? So the challenge, he says, is present even in our Jesuit universities. I, I think it's a tremendous danger uh, that, that it, it's part of the commoditization, commodification of higher education. Seeing it all on an economic model rather than an ethical model. Traditionally, universities have had an ethical center. That certainly was true in the 19th century, overwhelmingly so, so that they didn't do good science. And that in some ways they didn't do good religious studies either. It was pretty dry stuff. Uh, it was catechetical in the worst sense of the word. Uh, but I think if the university has a, a happy future and doesn't turn into a trade school, it's got to come back and say, what do you think universities are doing? Uh, Derek Bach, who should know about this, is pres former president of Harvard, wrote a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education about three years ago saying, the universities have failed in their civic responsibility. In the class of the, of the graduates of the class of 26, 2016, less than half voted in the election in 2016. Mm -hmm. Now, and, and you can go back to the high schools. The high schools are not teaching civics anymore. Uh, what, what do you, when you graduate from college, when the earliest colleges in the United States uh, around after the revolution, 
and after the Declaration of Independence and so forth and the, and the Constitution, there was a tremendous concern about what were colleges going to teach because if you're going to turn to the people and say, instead of having Lord so-and-so tell you what governing is supposed to be, now we're going to ask you what good governance is supposed to be. Well, what did they know about it? So it was, there was uh, the conservative religions, the radicals like, uh, like Thomas Paine were all writing treatises about how education ought to be led and uh, carried on in the United States. Because if you didn't educate people correctly, they would not be able to make political judgments. So if you see the kind of thing that's going on at the present time, where the constitution is being shredded and people will say, what's the constitution? <laughs> thank you very much, Dennis. I think that that's all we have time for, but. but well, that, well, thank you, Mark, very much. And I hope everyone out there in webinar land profited from it. Yeah. I enjoyed it, good. That's very good. Well, please join me in thanking Professor Alsnauer and, Pres or Professor and President Emeritus O'Brien for an excellent presentation. Uh, we all enjoyed it. And thank you to all of you for joining us. I'm grateful once again to Commonweal Magazine and the Shield Catholic Center at Northwestern University for helping to make this event a success. Finally, before we go, I invite you once again to support us. Help get the word out to your friends and parishes or follow us on social media and share our materials. Uh, you can also become a financial supporter of our work today at www.lumenchristi.org donate. A gift of any kind goes a long way and it makes events like this possible. Thank you so much and have a good night. <laughs>